Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Elevate your summer with Osea's best-selling body care set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go. Featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the best-seller's body care set, a $78 value, 33% off. And use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. Ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. Uh, We have a very special podcast for you today. Uh, We've got a guest in the studio. Sarah is going to introduce our guest who is prepping to argue uh, one of the most important abortion cases before the Supreme Court in years, Uh, not to put any pressure on her, uh, but a vitally important case. But before we get to that, uh, a couple of items of housekeeping. One, I'm going to keep hectoring you. Uh, Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Also, uh, become a member of the dispatch.com. We have had a tremendous uh, response ever since the not paywall came down. And we have been incredibly, we're incredibly grateful for the support that you've given us, uh, incredibly grateful for the, uh, really the incredible response we've had. So subscribe, subscribe to the dispatch.com, subscribe to this uh, podcast on Apple Podcasts, and also rate us, please. Um, one more item of housekeeping, I have to fall on my sword. Last podcast, we had this fantastic discussion of the e-bug, the emergency backup goalie in the game between the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Carolina Hurricanes, where a Dave, Dave Ayers, a, 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 guy, a Zamboni driver, came from the bowels of the stadium, uh, subbed in for two injured goalies, helped carry the Carolina Hurricanes to victory, Amazing story. I'm sure you've heard about it. You definitely heard about it if you listen to our podcast where I kept calling the Hurricanes the avalanche. I completely got my natural disasters mixed up and I have been appropriately chastised. No one feels worse about it than I feel. It was the Hurricanes. My apology to the Hurricanes, to Dave Ayers, to his awesome wife whose Twitter feed I found thanks to Sarah Isker. And uh, and uh, on behalf of advisory opinions, sloppy, Sarah, sloppy. Just terrible, terrible work, David. And you have been appropriately punished. Uh, there's there's been you know several you know self flagellations. I've, <laughs> I've witnessed it all. I'm wearing the hair so, shirt right I, now. I'm wearing the hair shirt good. right now. But enough about good. that. We've got a fantastic guest, uh, Sarah. Do you want to introduce the guest? Yes. <clears throat> 
I am so excited because we have been, this has been in the works for a while because I knew she was coming to D.C. She is a wonderful friend of, the friend of the podcast who is my husband also. Um, Liz Merle is the first Solicitor General for Louisiana. I am, that's right. <laughs> and I um, I love going through your like way back educational pedigree because we do have a lot of students who listen to this and I think it's just fun to see where people came up from. You were editor-in-chief of Louisiana State Law Review, but you got a Master's of Laws in Alternative Dispute Resolution from Pepperdine, which is pretty cool and has to come in handy, I would think, more than people would think, actually. It does. <laughs> uh, you did some clerking, mm-hmm. and fast forward a couple decades, you're this uh, Solicitor General for Louisiana, which comes with a lot of different things that people don't realize, and I want you to talk about that. Um, and now you're up preparing for this case. So, uh, Solicitor General, what does your day look like? Um, no day is ever the same. That's so the that's stuff. probably the, the <laughs> best answer to that. You know, every day is different. Um, always busy. It's it's the you know I think it's the best job in all of state government. How many arguments have you had? Three. Never yeah. really could have anticipated that. I don't think thought about that at all as I was. You know, thinking about my career when I got out of law school, even probably five years ago, I don't think I could have, would have projected and said, I'll be arguing three cases at the Supreme Court <laughs> in the next couple of years. We'll get to your strategy and and what prep days look like, because I, I love that. I obviously see it with Scott sometimes. Um, he gets really curmudgeonly, by the way, so I'm sure you know that. Um, but let's jump into some about this case Walk through the law itself. This is about admitting privileges. Well, and let's back up for a second. The name of the case mm-hmm. is June, Me- June Medical June Medical Services versus G. Correct. Now it's oh, Rousseau. Now Rousseau. Correct. All right. All right. <laughs> yes, we have a new interim secretary. And so the ba- the basic set it up with the the basic facts of the case. So the basic facts of the case are that in 2014, Louisiana passed an admitting privileges requirement. It is different from a lot of the other states who passed these laws in a couple of significant ways. We can talk about that in a minute. But Go for it. Um, so one, a lot of the states, for starters, had criminal penalties attached to their laws. Um, they also had laws like Texas did where they required abortion clinics to comply with the physical plant standards of an ambulatory surgery center and they required them to have admitting privileges and you know at least with Hellerstedt that had kind of a double whammy effect in Texas Uh, so our law is very different it has it's not criminal it's completely something that is part of the the facility licensing requirements for abortion clinics we do not require them to comply with the the physical plant standards of a there are some requirements for that that they have to comply with but they're not the same as an ambulatory surgery center which has a lot deeper right tighter regulations Um, but what does it mean to have admitting privileges so it means you have to have uh, the ability to admit and treat a patient at a hospital within 30 miles, somewhere within a 30-mile radius of the clinic. So something goes wrong at the clinic, um, a complication of some kind. Maybe it's too much bleeding. Maybe it's a respiratory uh, you know, issue all of a sudden. Punctured uterus. That's, that's like one that typically requires immediate transfer. Yeah. So then the issue is getting her to a hospital 
and that the doctor has, quote, these admitting privileges. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens if they don't have admitting privileges? So if they don't have admitting privileges, they have to to either have, a, they, I mean, like, so the, the law before this law required a written transfer agreement. Ambulatory surgery centers have to have both. They have to have an amb- they have to have a written transfer agreement and they have to have all of their medical staff have to have admitting privileges. So we simply added that element to our law as well because they're doing high volume surgical procedures similar to what occurs at an ambulatory surgery center and they use a pretty wide variety of anesthesia at different levels as well. Um, seems like it made common sense. It also was a law that was passed not just by our state but by a number of states on the recommendation that based on the recommendations from the Kermit Gosnell grand jury report after what had happened in Pennsylvania. So it it was a law that seemed like it made a lot of sense. I still think it does. Um, It diminishes the time to transfer someone to the hospital. It diminishes communication gaps, which are when the largest amount of problems can occur if you're not um, if there are delays in communication or the, the doctor's not communicating directly with uh, the, the hospital. And if you're just going to send someone to the emergency room on their own, then you have dramatically increased the likelihood that there's going to be a communication gap because now you've put Patient a non-medical person who's in a crisis in a position to explain what happened to them. So there... I do want to spend a little bit of time on this factual side before we get to mm-hmm. the legal side, because a lot of the pushback is that this is, um, A, unnecessary, uh, that obviously they would still accept her into the emergency room. Uh, and so why having the admitting privileges, as you said, it, it cuts down on time, you said, and it cuts down on this patient information gap um, so that, you know, her, she does not have to advocate for herself at that point, mm-hmm. which is... Um, Certainly, we see in other healthcare situations that patient advocacy becomes this very big deal in some maternal health questions. Um, okay, but the second one, well, you may not, you don't know what's wrong with you. You know, I mean, you know what <laughs> right. you know what procedure you had, right. but you don't know what's causing your problem. Um, but I, I think the, I mean, there's the other element of it was credentialing, and I think that was a big deal for our state. Because the the doctors at these clinics don't do they have they're they're owned remotely by people who are not living in our state and aren't aren't medical people at all, and the doctors are independent contractors, so they're not always there at the clinics, and and the the medical directors don't do any real credentialing at all anyway. So. Well, so this gets to maybe the second pushback, which is these doctors then apply for admitting privileges and get denied. It's not it's not like. Um, I don't know. Let's compare it to our bar exams. You take the bar exam, you pass, you fail. That's what's decided. And now you're you know, licensed in that state. Admitting privileges at hospitals is different. It can be far more arbitrary, I guess, is maybe the best term. So I don't think it really is that arbitrary. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion in Hellerstedt. Certainly, there are a lot of arguments being made in this case that it's an arbitrary and they can be arbitrarily denied. But if you really look at the bylaws, they, they're very clear. They lay out with that these are all really competency-based evaluations. Uh, there's an appeal process. Louisiana state law also requires that, that privileging decisions for nonprofit hospitals, and all of these hospitals are, um, that they provide due process. And so they can actually take that appeal all the way up through the state court system. 
so I don't think it's nearly as arbitrary as as it's been presented. And every single one of these bylaws also provides the, a mechanism to seek a waiver of any element, anything that's required. So, so for example, if they said, you know, oh, there's a residency requirement, you can actually seek a waiver of that requirement. So I don't think it's nearly as arbitrary as, as it's been argued. Uh, and it absolutely does perform a credentialing function when they're looking at criminal backgrounds and malpractice histories and how much malpractice insurance you have and what your current skill level is. It, so it's not quite the black and white of a bar that. exam, but it's also, it sounds like, not just up to whoever's running the hospital that day and whether they ate breakfast. No, they can be sued if they're <laughs> discriminating and there are anti-discrimination provisions in them and the, the church amendment, um, if they receive federal funds, which they all do. And that's easy enough to check. It's on our. It's on the LDH website. You can look up every hospital in every parish, and they all receive federal funding. They are subject to the federal uh, HHS Church Amendment, which says you cannot deny and granting or denying privileges to someone on the basis of whether they do or do not perform abortions. But you know, you said something earlier, and I wanted to clarify that they can get privileges. I mean, that was one of the most the distinctive features of our case is that the doctors. One of the doctors at the plaintiff clinic at Hope already had them and has had them for 30 years. Another doctor, I think four out of the six plaintiffs at a given time, they're not all plaintiffs now, but the six who were currently at the time that the suit was filed challenging the law, had had privileges in the past while they were performing abortions, and two of them obtained privileges during the course of the litigation. So it's just not correct that they can't get them. Their own evidence proved. So, that quick they question. Could. So, David, do you want to step? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Quick question, factual question. One: How many currently operating abortion clinics are there in the state of Louisiana? And of the number of doctors who are performing abortions at that clinic or clinics, uh, how many of them have admitting privileges? So the the one who has always had them throughout the litigation and prior to that for probably, I think, about 30 years. Uh, there were two who obtained privileges during the course of the litigation, but I don't know whether they still have them. Uh, they got an, you know, when they, once they obtained an, an injunction, I'm, I'm not sure what incentive they had to keep them. So they may not have them anymore, but, you know, the record shows they can get them. And there's, and one, and there's uh, how many clinics? There's three. Cl- there are three clinics now. There were five at the time this case started, and two closed uh, for for reasons that are completely unrelated to this law. David, do you want to step back and give us, you know, a few bars of Casey v. Planned Parenthood? <laughs> hum a few uh, for a us. Few. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not going to dive too far into the weeds, but the basic state of the law right now. Uh, after Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which I remember vividly, it was decided right when I was in law school. There was a huge amount of anticipation about it because there was a thought that this could be the case that overruled Roe because this was a challenge to Roe um, <clears throat> mounted during the uh, Bush administration with a majority Republican. Bush, Bush won. one. Sorry, yes, Bush one. I think people would assume that I was in law school during Bush one given my venerable <laughs> age. <clears throat> but during Bush one, with a majority uh, Republican appointee Supreme Court, and the court reaffirmed the essential holding of Roe, but then put in a standard for determining whether or not a uh, state abortion restriction or abortion restriction of any kind 
violated the right to abortion, essentially saying you could not impose an undue burden on the right to an abortion, which is a really fuzzy term. And and a lot of abortion rights advocates after Casey, after they sort of were happy that Casey upheld the right to abortion, began to get really concerned about the fuzziness of this term. And so you're coming in, and just to be clear, your, your argument is that the Louisiana Admitting Privileges Law does not you're not trying to overturn Casey. You're trying to say it complies with Casey. Is that right? That's right. But you wouldn't be that upset if they overturned Casey. <laughs> We're not asking them to do that. I mean, we think we went under Casey or Whole Woman's Health. I mean, okay. either way you cut it. We just, I mean, I, we, this was the, the, the argument we made at the Fifth Circuit. So it's no, you know, big mystery. But, I mean, we argued all along, and I think it's still correct, that they simply failed to carry their burden of proof. They did not. It's It's a basic fundamental failure to carry your burden of proof to facially invalidate a state law. So fast forward from Casey to Whole Women's Health. Mm-hmm. And and do you want to give hum a few bars of Whole Women's Health since this is a little bit what your case turns on, whether it is Whole Women's Health Part 2, which you would lose under, or whether you are in fact distinct from Whole Women's Health? Uh, well, to be clearer, I mean, we think if you apply the rule of Whole Women's Health, if you can kind of figure out what that is, then it's some kind of, you know, this balancing test. <laughs> no, and I mean, if it's, it's and if benefits just, you're found to be identical and, to whole women's health, like if it's just the same case. If it was exactly yeah. the same, <laughs> if it was virtually identical, <laughs> then we probably wouldn't be here. I mean, there's no doubt we wouldn't be here if it was identical. I mean, although our, there are some people who it's argue. It's not identical, so we are. Yeah, they're, they're, and we'll get to this, but yeah. there's some people who argue it's the identical case. The only thing that's changed is the makeup of the court from Kennedy to Kavanaugh. But First, Hamas Whole Women's Health. <laughs> so Whole Women's Health came to the Supreme Court as an it was an as applied challenge after Texas had successfully litigated and defended the facial challenge to its admitting privileges law to and, and it wasn't exclusively admitting privileges. They were sued over a law we call it SB2. That's the whole discussion of it in Whole Woman's Health. And SB2 had the two-prong requirement of admitting privileges and compliance with all of the physical standards of an ambulatory surgery center. And so the there was a pre-enforcement facial challenge that failed and or that sex, Texas successfully defended. And then a few days after that, like I think three days after that case ended and no cert petition was filed and as applied challenge was filed by a couple of clinics i think in McAllen and maybe corpus christi or somewhere and and so it was litigated entirely as an as applied challenge and and there was an injunction that was issued uh, texas went to the fifth circuit and got it reversed and then it all goes up to the United States Supreme Court, whereupon the Supreme Court issues this opinion and grants facial relief to an as-applied challenge. So that's one of the weird, quirky things about <laughs> Whole Woman's Health, that they granted relief that was broader than that that the parties had even asked for. Uh, just one of the unique things that I see about, you know, and now litigating about that case and several other cases, we've, you know, it's a challenging opinion to parse. So that was... That, but we're now just a couple of years later. That was 5-4, like right? This is, just, to, just to be clear, Whole Women's Health was 5-4, correct? With yes. Kennedy and the five. Yes. Right. right. Okay. 
That's an important fact. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's an important fact. Um, that, so what are some other unique things about Whole Woman's Health? I mean, Whole Woman's Health starts, the very first sentence of that opinion starts with a quote from Casey. And then it goes through this whole kind of analysis of the undue burden test under Casey. And there's a lot of discussion in there about how to do that analysis and when do you balance the burdens and the benefits. And uh, it's still very much something that is debated. We argued at the Fifth Circuit about how we viewed Whole Woman's Health and what we thought the process should be and how to apply it. Um, the Fifth Circuit told us we were wrong and that you know, it clearly requires balancing of burdens and benefits. There's still some lack of clarity about, think about when you do that. Our position is that you don't get to balancing until there's actually a substantial obstacle. And so we will see probably if we're right, um, maybe. But one of the things that's interesting is Whole Women's Health is decided in 2016. We're only four years later. Uh, It's unusual for the court to revisit something that quickly. Well, remember, the petition for cert was not filed by us. <laughs> we were successful at the Fifth Circuit. Um, we, we argued that that was a correct. We still argue that judgment was correct. Uh, we did file a conditional cross petition, and we raised the issue of uh, third-party standing and, kind of, I mean, just would like the court to address why these providers are perpetually allowed to raise the rights of women when there are no women actually challenging the law. And I think from a common sense perspective, if you don't have what's hap- what happened in Texas and you don't have any proof of that sort of dramatic constriction on access, most women, I think, would feel like, and most women I talk to do feel like, they would like, they like this law. They think it is better for them. It does ensure more continuity of care and, and it protects their privacy better because they don't have to share their personal information with as many people if they do have a complication. And so for a whole variety of reasons, not, you know, the least of which is the history in our state of some pretty egregious health and safety violations, uh, it just seems to be a good a good law. And I don't know that anybody that's against it. Now, it seems, you know, if you're looking, I think that I think that your circuit court decision upholding your law, the law made it basically inevitable that cert was going to be granted or as close as inevitable as could be, because it is facially in many ways quite similar to the Texas law. I know there's distinctions. I know they're not identical, but it is an it it was perfectly teed up by the circuit court for the Supreme Court to come in and say, huh, this could be confusing to people if you if your law is upheld and whole and and we deny cert and whole women's health is still Supreme Court precedent um, I took that I took that as essentially the circuit court saying to the Supreme Court um, yeah we think this is ripe for uh, rethinking am I reading too much into it well I try not to try and read the minds of Supreme <laughs> Court justices so you know can't, it's hard to say but I certainly that's the way my friends who, you know, represent June Medical argued it. They argued that the court should grant summary reversal and there was no need to even look at this case any deeper and that the Fifth Circuit had completely gone rogue and they should just flat out reverse them. I'm glad or reverse it. I'm glad that this 
the Supreme Court didn't do that. And obviously, I have felt very strongly all along that our case, that our facts was, were different, that our regulatory structure was different, and that that the the record in our case was very, very different. And above all, that they had failed to prove that there would be any burden at all because they failed to prove that they couldn't get privileges. Should the purpose of the law matter uh, in Texas or Louisiana if the purpose is to pass a pro-life, anti-abortion, we hope that there are fewer abortions and abortion clinics because of this law. Does that have any legal significance in these cases? I mean, I think generally the answer to that is yes, it has legal significance. It always has some legal significance. I mean, the what significance it has is really going to depend on the law. And so if you, you I mean, there are some laws that states pass that are targeted more toward protecting fetal life or protecting the integrity of the medical ethics or of people who have to participate in the procedure in the same way that we have laws um, or we have a lot of litigation in that same space around death penalty issues. I mean, so ethics plays a lot about into this, I think. Uh, it just depends. Informed consent laws, for example. I mean, those yeah. are all every every law that's passed may it may have mixed purposes. It may have um, a purpose to protect fetal life or show respect for fetal life or test you know the viability limit. It's where I the mean, Casey those, test those are for all me things gets, that the laws could do. It's where undue burden gets weird because if yeah. well you know. Yes. There's whether it is and its result has been an undue burden, whether it was intended to be a burden. Um, to David, to your point about it being fuzzy math, maybe. <laughs> well, the math gets yes. real fuzzy. Uh, you know, on I think the of it. Traction test. <laughs> well, that, you know, part of it is okay. Is it an undue burden based on effect? As you were mm-hmm. saying, Sarah. In other words, is this a law that? Let's say you had seven abortion clinics in Louisiana and the laws passed and enforced and all seven stay open and all the doctors get admitting privileges uh, and and patients are safe, you know, that the women and girls are safeguarded um, and there's no effect on access to abortion. Or then does it change dramatically if instead of uh, seven clinics, there's the three, as you said, and maybe one of them would have to close even though that the the object of the law is not necessarily to force closure, it's not necessarily the natural effect of it because in theory, doctors can get admitting privileges. It seems that's one of the things that's up in the air about this undue burden standard. Do you look at it and you say a law that would be otherwise valid except that the doctors in Louisiana, the abortion doctors in Louisiana just aren't gonna go get admitting privileges would that then render the law invalid because of its effect? And again, that's part of the the fuzzy math of uh, of of this standard. And it, and it struck me that part part of the whole women's health calculus yes, exactly. was that the Supreme Court was was looking at not just intent and not just whether this made sense in the made sense in the way that you've described it, but what would it actually do to how many clinics are open in the state? Yeah, I mean, if you had a law and its purpose was to close clinics, let's say just you have a law, its purpose is, is to to stop all abortions by shutting down all the clinics, but it doesn't work. It right. just doesn't do that. <laughs> They're bad at lawmaking. The test yeah. is whether its purpose or effect is to create a substantial obstacle for women and their ability to exercise their choice. So 
if the purpose is illegitimate just for purposes of discussion, but it doesn't actually carry out that purpose, then it's like a tree falling in the forest with no one there to hear it. I mean, I don't it doesn't do anything. It doesn't violate the Constitution because it just doesn't have any effect on that choice. It might be a stupid law or a bad law, but I don't think that it's I don't think that I think that it has to ultimately to have an effect. And and if we just carry that back into kind of the injury element to create a, an injury to women, which is where things Article three gets a little bit fuzzy, I think you have these doctors who bring these bring these claims and they may have to change what they're doing. So they obviously well, so I, I, have to change. Something. I thought of, I thought of a of a simpler way of describing what I was trying to get at, okay. which I just realized what I was what I was trying to get at was confusing. Well, sometimes I start is it, rambling. <laughs> <laughs> is it possible that bad doctors could defeat this law? In other words, the, the fact that. The fact that the abortion doctors performing abortions in Louisiana are so bad, I, I'm not evaluating one way or the other, but it's the possibility that bad, the very fact that the abortion doctors are too, too poor, too bad to get admitting privileges, could that create an effect, of, in other words, of closing the, closing the clinics that could per- perversely save the law? That's, that's what the yeah, question is. Yeah, let's talk about at. it in a different context than our law because I, I have an example of that. So in Missouri, for example, um, the doctors refused to participate in the relicensing process. There's one clinic in St. Louis, and the doctor said, we won't let you interview us. So they're all independent contractors of the clinic, and they just said, you know, we're not, we're not going to participate. So it creates this kind of problem where the the providers can make decisions on their own independently. The law didn't require them to do that. The law does require the clinic to go through a licensing process to get keep its license and renew its license. But they're not playing ball. They just don't want to they won't participate. And the clinic is able to go and get an injunction and stay open anyway. So it this what you're talking about, I think the answer is yes, but it, it, the, the whole system is flawed because it tends right. to be built around the effect rather than the reasonableness or the necessity of the law. So, you know, if you have a really bad history like we do, it seems pretty reasonable that we should be able to regulate and and heighten our regulatory requirements on the basis of facts on the ground in our state. That's how we protect people. But if, if the effect of a law is simply to restrict access and that's enough to, to, for a federal court to basically force us to keep the, the place open, then yeah, you have this problem where you potentially have very bad doctors or bad, or bad clinics um, or clinics who are just willfully noncompliant, which we've seen um, in the deficiency reports in our state. And they just basically can get away with it because the Supreme Court precedent kind of draws this protective zone around them. But to use my lawyer example, my bar exam Mm -hmm. example, uh, you can have a bar exam that is completely fair. And unfortunately, all the law students taking it are too dumb to pass it. And now we have no (laughs) lawyers in the state because they're all just dum-dums. Right. 
but you could also create a bar exam that is so intentionally difficult that even though the law students, some of them should pass it, they're, none of them are going to pass it that way. And I think that's sort of where... Well, I'm sure some of the ones who don't pass it think that, that <laughs> that's, that's right. already And the, the dum-dums also think that they're, they're <laughs> smarter. Uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about now legal strategy here. Um, you said y'all are not asking to overturn Casey. That's that's right. Um, what are you asking for? Who are your swing votes? How are you targeting them? I mean, let's get into it. This is the <laughs> this is the sexy part. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure how much I'm going to say about that, but fine. Uh, you know, generally, I will say this: we um, we did not ask of, we did not ask to overrule Casey or Whole Woman's Health because we think we win either. Whether you apply either one, even in a, a the, even if you read Whole Woman's Health as requiring this balance of benefits and burdens, we think we win. So we don't think the court is necessarily in a position where it would have to overrule. Now, if the court disagrees with me on everything, then we have suggested that it should clarify Whole Woman's Health in a manner that reconciles it with Casey. And like all good lawyers, you have fallback positions. That's right. <laughs> so that's kind of where we are. Well, you know, that that's uh, you, you raised something, I think, that's very valuable, especially for uh, uh, we again, we've got a lot of law students who not only listen, but they want to do the kind of work that you do, the kind of work that I used to do. Which, and one of the things I tell law students all the time is you represent a cl- once you're in, in the court battle, your your prime your prime focus is on your client needs to win the case. You're representing a client more than you're representing a, a cause. Right. And so you don't you don't walk into the court and think, what can I argue for the cause today? You walk into the court and you say, how can I argue so that my client is most likely to win? And that's why I don't think, you know, you don't walk in, to use a baseball analogy, taking these gigantic swings for the upper deck uh, knowing that nine times out of ten you're going to swing and miss, you're just trying to trying to get on base, so to speak. And it seems to me that if you're arguing, if you're walking in arguing that Casey has to go for you to win, <laughs> you're putting your you're putting the your client in a difficult position. Yeah, I don't think that's a very smart strategy. I mean, <laughs> you know, courts by their nature, not just the United States Supreme Court. Certainly, I think they are, but but. The circuit courts, the federal circuits, the state, our state courts are similar. I mean, they're generally reluctant. They're conservative by nature. Their job is to adjudicate cases and controversies and to try and apply the law in a in an even way and where, where facts and circumstances are similar to come up with rules that will be similarly applied. And um, so I, I think that the more radical you're asking the court to be, the less successful you probably will be. So maybe without getting into specific uh, strategies for individual justices that you may have, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the preparation? Uh, you're up here doing moots. Yep. What do those look like for you? What's helpful about them? So moots are brutal. That's what you <laughs> want them to be. I've done, I did. But someone doesn't like, they don't all wear robes and one person no. puts on a doily and one no. other person <laughs> sits way back in their chair and makes guffawing laughs. Uh, you know, they don't yeah, actually, no. it's not like a presidential debate prep, what people think it is, where each one plays a candidate. Oh, do they do that? <laughs> well, no, actually, but people think it does because that's what it looks like on TV. <laughs> no, but I, you know, I, so I mooted it. I, I've done a couple of moots before I came to D.C., 
Uh, I was here last week for uh, for three moots. I've done three more this week. Altogether, I will have done nine moots for this case. <laughs> uh, and the I've done I've argued two other cases, and I did three in D.C. And I did a couple of moots at home, you know, with law professors at LSU and with some other folks that I could get to volunteer to do it. It's a lot of work to prepare for a moot. So not just for me. I mean, obviously, I'm preparing for months to argue a case. But the people who are mooting me, it is a lot of work for them because they've got to go read all the briefs. And, you know, if they're really going to kind of get into it, they're going to read They're going to read some of the, the they're going to read the cases. And so, you know, the best moots are are with people who kind of do this for a living and are really interested in making sure that we don't kind of mess it up, you know, for lack of a better term. I mean, I think that the, the Supreme Court bar in D.C. is very, very generous with their time. And, it's a and, pay it forward system. Yeah. And I, I think that's I mean, that's enormously beneficial to anybody who's arguing, but it's certainly been very um, advantageous to state advocates because we now have a pretty good, you know, core group uh, all across the country of solicitor generals and deputy SGs and people who who may be up here arguing cases. So we do get a little bit of a chance to be repeat to to come up here more than once. And um, but you know, we we all know there are stories of um, I think Justice Thomas likes to tell a story about it district attorney and assistant district attorney from Louisiana who did such a terrible job that they, you know, they really hope that never happens again. So I I saw him at a reception once. I said, I hope we're doing a better job. (laughs) He said that we were, but I'm not sure he was, you know, I don't know if he was just being kind. He had to say it. So I've got I've got a kind of a brass tacks question about about prep. Uh So I've not had the privilege of arguing in front of the Supreme Court. I've done Federal Court of Appeals, State Supreme Court. And I would prep knowing full well I was going to be interrupted. But I would I would kind of prep. I would have a, a for lack of a better term, a speech that would fill the time uh, that I had in the back of my mind to where I could keep going until I was interrupted. Do you do something like that? Or do you kind of how do you how do you construct here is how I here is how when I stand up and I start talking, here is how I start to construct it. Because that's yeah. a that's a kind of a different thing from here's how I respond to all of the incoming questions that I know I'll get. It is. You kind of have to change you it's I guess it's like training for for anything. You have to cross train. You, you know, right. you want to kind of change <laughs> your your what you do a little bit. So the one thing a lot of people forget to do is to to plan and train for silence. Yes. <laughs> and it, at the United States Supreme Court, it's rare that you have that, but I've it's not it. it's yep. not unlikely. And I mean, and there are awkward. some cases where you just may not get any questions, and you're going you're going to be standing up there, and you've got to talk. And you know, you don't. The the one thing that I always tell law students, and I was a moot court coach, and and I taught legal writing and appellate advocacy at LSU for for years, and you know, you don't have to stay up there and talk the whole time. So that's a good rule to remember, too, is that if you've said what you need to say, then you just sit down. Uh, if nobody's asking you any questions, then sit down. Uh, but 
usually up there they're asking you questions and so one of the things that you need to do is prepare for a couple of things you need to be prepared for all the questions that you might get asked and that's part of what the moot process does um, you also have to prepare for judges and this happens you know at all in all the, the circuit courts too that might filibuster you and try and use up your time or keep you talking right. about something that you don't want to talk about or keep you from talking about things you do want to talk especially about. a vote you're never going to get yeah, yeah. So that's that's just part of the practice and the discipline. The other thing is you can moot. Like when I moot, I usually moot for and I'll stand up and answer questions for an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. And I'll go just as long as somebody's got questions, I'm going to keep answering them. And uh, that's not realistic. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to be at the podium for two hours. So then right. you kind of have to switch your strategy again and change like, okay, now I'm going to do this for 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 15, you know, however long yeah. you actually have at the podium and, and think about, you know, managing your time well. <clears throat> Reserving time. What's your strategy there? Well, if I am topside, I always reserve some time for rebuttal. That's usually when I'm on my best game. <laughs> so I, I have a, a quick fun story about rebuttal. I was once in courtroom in a federal district court. You know, and you know how when often they'll have motion days and you just sit there and you watch your colleagues and other cases, you know, arguing case after case, waiting your turn. And I saw uh, one time I saw an attorney after their opposing counsel was brutalized by the judge, just brutalized during his oral argument. He got up for rebuttal and he literally said, and I'm trying to remember the words exactly, but something to the effect of after witnessing what you did to my opposing, uh, to opposing counsel, anything I say at this point could only hurt my case. So <laughs> thank you. I will I refrain from rebuttal. <laughs> yes. Uh, now that would a be, a, day, that Jed. would be a move. <laughs> yeah. That, that would be a move at the Supreme Court. I don't think that I don't think that would be wise, but do wow. You I'm not sure have, they'd let us get away with that. But Do you have day of rituals? <laughs> I don't really have day of Lucky rituals. earrings. <laughs> um, I'm wearing some earrings now that my mother gave to me for good luck. Uh, let's see. I'll wear those. Will you eat a good breakfast? I will. I will eat a good breakfast with a lot of protein. <laughs> Carb load the night before. <laughs> yeah. I exercise a lot. I do that. I do exercise a lot in the prep in the months before and, you know, now, right now, basically every day, it helps to manage kind of the stress. I mean, when you're that focused and reading and, you know, I will sit and read and work and kind of work in the cases and work on my notes and things like that for hours at a time. And so you really have to kind of make yourself get up. Do you think, uh, you know, so Scott, my husband, argued Whole Women's Health in Texas. Scott argued nine cases, so he's still got the record, I think, for SGs. Uh, first of all, do you have a plan of how you're going to gloat if you win and he lost? Um, I, I personally vote that we have to come to Louisiana and have dinner and Absolutely. buy you dinner. Can I That's can a great I put idea. in for that bet? Uh, but, uh, you know, as a man arguing an abortion case... Certainly, media-wise, press-wise, it's different. Um, you are the female SG of Louisiana. You're not here because you're a woman. You're here because you're the Solicitor General. But it is different. Uh, do you, when you're approaching media interviews about this or uh, talking about it publicly, do you approach that differently? Well, I think because I am a woman that. 
I, I have probably I have to be let I mean I've obviously I'm concerned about women and I have you know a couple of nieces and you know I mean I'm there's I'm part of the sisterhood I'm worried about women I want to make sure that they're safe and and so for me this isn't hard I mean I think that it's easy it's very easy especially uh, once I read all of the documents in this case and read the history of the abortion providers behavior in our state and their lack of compliance it was absolutely um, not difficult for me to talk in the press and tell them this is about taking care of women and girls. I mean, I, there, there are documents that I have dealt with in this litigation and in other in the subsequent litigation and the cases that the other cases that I'm defending that show that there are girls as young as 11, 12 and 13 years old who are obtaining abortions at these facilities, and yet I can't document any reporting or any compliance with any of the state laws that that would protect them from what is, uh, by state law, a first-degree rape. So, you know, it's I, I do talk about those things in interviews. I think it's important for the for the, the the public to understand that facts can differ from state to state and that we regulate based on the needs of our states. And and so, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I probably I certainly don't have to worry about being accused of mansplaining, which (laughs) which I think the men do get accused of and, you know, unfairly. But but that's kind of the reaction that I've seen. Uh, One other female specific question, just as someone who, uh, you know, whether it's press conferences or on the trail or whatever, I do have to give my shoe wear some real thought ahead of time. What do you think of shoes for your argument? I mean, you're standing up there. It's stressful. There's this podium. The floor is very, very hard. So that's a great question. The shoes that I desperately wanted to wear are the the black Christian Louboutin pumps with the red soles. Yeah. Hell yeah. So I went searching for them when I was here for the Ramos argument. Yes. There was actually a specific pair that I was looking for, and I found them, and they were so uncomfortable that I couldn't <laughs> buy them. So then I tried on another pair, but they were so high mm-hmm. that I thought that that would not be court appropriate. As you teeter <laughs> so over and like, <laughs> so I just couldn't. I couldn't wear shoes that were more distracting than my right. argument. So, um, so I'm still in search of the right exact pair of shoes, but I still think those are kind of the right pair, the right shoes, the right because idea. you can see the red. Now, I've, I have a question that the court hasn't, um, I haven't actually posed the question. I'm, I'm afraid of the answer. It's one of those things where I may want to ask <laughs> for forgiveness and um, instead of permission. But, uh, but what could I just wear red pumps? Like, I love to wear red pumps to court. I wear them to the Louisiana Supreme Court all the time. But so you know, when Ted they always Cruz, say wear dark clothes, but does that mean I can't wear red shoes? <laughs> when Ted Cruz was Solicitor General of Texas, uh-huh. uh, he's very proud of this. Uh, John Roberts is the chief justice, and he asked the chief justice, can I wear cowboy boots to the argument? Because similar to what you said, that is not included in the rules, though it isn't specifically prohibited either. And the chief justice says, as Solicitor General of Texas, I would expect you to wear cowboy boots. Well, so to that point, that should mean that I could wear my alligator boots. Uh, yes. and Because you're... I have alligator cowboy boots. You know, it's my alligator. <laughs> They're my boots. And I should be able to wear my alligator boots. Maybe that's what you should wear. You know? Well, how, how about what? Can I get in on this clothing <laughs> conversation? Sure. 
Sure. I mean, mansplain the heels. (laughs) How about a very tasteful Joe Burrow jersey? LSU. Uh, I have a Joe Burrow T-shirt, and my one of my rituals right now is the hype video. Have you seen the LSU championship pregame hype video no. by The Rock? No, oh, that sounds amazing. You got to see oh, the I hype have. video. It's super oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, Anything inv- if you combine SEC football and Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Yeah, David's there. Who who is, who is the official advisory opinions greatest living American? <laughs> um, then I am all about it. So it's absolutely. great. If you haven't seen it, you can you can look it up on YouTube. It is so great. On alligators, your boss, the attorney general of Louisiana, hosts uh, an alligator shoot. Is that what y'all call it? It's an alligator hunt. Yep, annual yeah. alligator hunt. Is that where your boots are from, or is that a separate alligator for you? That is that is where I acquired the alligator. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean that. So that is a credentialed solicitor general for Louisiana. That's fantastic. That's well. So let me wrap up this discussion, and we'll move on to the movies we we're talking about beforehand. A quick discussion about got to have our pop culture segment. Got to do it. Uh, but I wanted to wrap up real quickly by just sort of breaking down for everybody. Here are the potential. Outco- real most realistic potential outcomes here, and why I think this is, as I said at the very beginning of the of the podcast, why I said this is a really important case. Uh, it's going to tell us an awful lot about where the post-Kennedy court is. So one potential outcome is they just apply, they say this is encompassed within whole women's health. If, if they say that and Louisiana loses, then that's going to be, I don't, I think it would be very, very, very bitterly disappointing to pro-life voters Uh, and to the pro-life movement. That would be very bitterly disappointing. If the Supreme Court says whole women's health, we're not overturning whole women's health, but it doesn't apply here and Louisiana wins, that's a good outcome. Uh, But it is a, it's a very, it's a modest outcome in the scheme of things. If the Supreme Court says whole women's health would apply, but whole women's health was wrongly decided, then you're beginning to open up whether this court is interpreting undue burden in a substantially different way than previous courts have. I won't even get into overruling Casey. I don't think that is an even in the ballpark of possibilities. I think I see those as the three main outcome possibilities. Uh, do you what what do you think of those as sort of a a sort of a general range of expectation? I think that's about right. I mean, I don't think the court either way is going to is going to do anything that's super dramatic. I, you know, our case, to the extent that it presses, it, it it may press on some of the the softer points of whole woman's health, and I do think that case needs to be clarified. Now, whether they do that in this case or not, uh, we remains to be seen. But we have a lot of other cases that are pending, and and all the states have been you know, pretty tied up in knots over how to, how this opinion is is to be applied and not just the states, but the courts. So I think it does need to be clarified and that, that would at least be a step in the right direction. What do you do right after the argument? <laughs> do you have lunch plans, wine plans, <laughs> nap plans? The last two times I've, you know, went back and fixed a good stiff drink and <laughs> kicked my shoes off and took a deep breath and kind of 
relaxed. I, I think this time I'll, you know, I'll go home and maybe go to the beach. <laughs> go to Disneyland. <laughs> All right, David, movie time. No, that is way too much work. We're not going to <laughs> Disneyland. <laughs> I mean, when you're going to the beach and not moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so right before it started, I asked uh, I asked Sarah if she had seen the movie Midway, okay? And the reason why I bring it up, it wasn't an awesome movie. It wasn't like it, – it wasn't nominated for anything. It didn't deserve to be nominated for anything. I believe it's the same guy who did Independence Day. Do you remember that movie, oh, the I original Independence movie. Day, Sarah? You mean the best movie ever of the 90s? Yeah, no, I remember it. Oh, Sarah, you are so – you're almost right. You're almost right. <laughs> That is one of the best movies of the 90s. That should have been nominated for everything, everything. but it wasn't yeah. everything. Uh, but anyway, I saw it, and I haven't been able to stop talking about it because it just reminded me how suicidally brave, I mean suicidally brave, our sailors and airmen had to be in the to even have a chance against the Imperial Japanese Navy in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. I, there is, it, it, it captures better than anything I've seen this phenomenon. The only way to really accurately destroy ships from the air other than torpedoes that didn't work was this phenomenon of, of dive bombing and where these planes, these rickety planes, inferior planes, essentially dive straight head on into a wall of flak with at high speed uh, and and have to release the bomb at exactly the right moment. Too soon they miss, too late they crash into the water, all under fire. And it's I would encourage you to see the movie just for those scenes to get a sense of what it meant, um, and what what our guys went through in World War II. I mean, it, it's one of the most vivid things. I've ever seen as far as just like the sheer bravery. So I just had to put that out there. It's Liz, it's incredibly vivid. It's a Liz, good pitch. You, we talked about 1917. We've both seen that. But do you have a favorite um, war depiction movie? I don't know. You're kind of putting me on the spot. I know. I was trying to think of my own as he was describing that. I've uh, seen Saving Private Ryan yeah. multiple times. That's yeah. a pretty good one just of – you know, more recent years. But I mean, my all-time favorite We were big John movie. Wayne fans, so we oh. used to watch all the old movies. <laughs> no, that, those count? Yeah. Bridge on the River Kwai oh, yeah. uh, definitely is on the list for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite all-time movie is Zero Dark Thirty, which I, I yeah. whether you count that as a war movie or not, that could be a whole different discussion. Um, but that's that's my, like, go-to. Yeah, I think it's feminism. Sir? I think it's war. I think it's uh, patriotism. <laughs> it's, like, everything for me. So, Sarah, can I tell you the correct answer to that question? Best wartime movie ever? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. It's Black Hawk Down. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. It, have you have you seen that one about the Battle of Mogadishu? Oh, yeah. It's a very good one. Uh, so, here's the reason I haven't. I have started it like seven times, and I know how hard it will be for me to watch it. And so, I keep stopping it after 30 seconds or so because I just can't handle it at that moment. Which is weird. I watch all oh, it, sorts yeah. of horrible. The one about Benghazi is good too. What's that? That's um, oh, thirteen, 13 hours. hours. Thirteen. Yeah, yeah, that one's really yeah. good it's too. Tough. Tough to watch. The, the thing I think that's so amazing, Black Hawk Down is very, very, very tough to watch. Uh, it's based a, a lot of it is based like it's on based on the the book Black Hawk Down, which was based on actual transcripts and actual communication between 
uh, you know, the, the Rangers and Delta Force who are out there, the radio traffic. It's very, very, very true to life. And uh, not to say others aren't, but it's uh, in, incredibly true to life and also true to feel from, you know, somebody who's been on foot patrols in Iraq, which is not Somalia, obviously, but it just communicates the sort of the feel of that kind of un- raw danger. But anyway, we're way far afield. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to ask that question, Sarah. So All I had right. to give the I had to give the correct answer to that question. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for coming over here. We will absolutely be listening to the audio, uh, if not going in person. And um, and I think Scott has been at some of your moots, at least one of them. He has. Yep. Uh, so he has a, a knack for showing up at those arguments. I'm sure you'll see him oh, at the good. audience with the cowboy boots. Well, I hope to spend some time with you guys again. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, this is a lot of fun. So, you know, invite I'm, me anytime you ho- want to. I'm very hopeful that sometime in the next few months we'll be analyzing a victorious opinion. So you'll have to come down to New Orleans. Good luck and God bless. (laughs) The gloating. Yes. (laughs) Hopefully. I'm not counting my chickens before they're hatched. I'm still waiting on an opinion from October. So we'll see. Well, thank you all very much for listening. This has been the Advisory Opinions Podcast with David French and Sarah Isger. And please, again, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, become a member of the Dispatch, and please rate us on Apple Podcast. Five stars only, please. Thank you very much. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.